This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, the story is Spring Fugue by Harold Brodke. First impulse of active love. A sloppy kiss while my wife is putting on her shoes. She gazes at me. Oh, it's spring, she says. Spring Fugue was published in the magazine in the spring of 1990. The story was chosen today by Jeffrey Eugenides, whose novel Middlesex won the Pulitzer Prize in 2002. Eugenides has been publishing short fiction in The New Yorker for more than 10 years. He joins me from a studio in Princeton, New Jersey. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Deborah. So you recently um, edited an anthology of love stories called My Mistress's Sparrow is Dead, and I noticed that you included two Harold Brodke stories in I it. I know, I know. <laughs> no one else got more than one, not even Chekhov. I'm being very good to Harold. <laughs> so I wonder, what, what is it that draws you so strongly to his work? Well, one reason I chose two of his stories was um, because the, the first one was written, I think, when he was in his mid-20s. And the the last one was written when he was much older. So the change in his style was remarkable to me. And I thought anyone reading the anthology would, would, in addition to encountering all these different stories about love, would actually see what happened to to a person who loved language over over an entire career. So it was really that it was that kind of travel, or that the distance that that Brodke took in his career that made me put the two stories in. And is Brodke someone that you've you've been reading for all of your writing life or reading life? For a long time, he's one of my, my favorite writers, and he makes sounds that no one else makes, and it seems to me that they're the right sounds. There's a kind of combination in his work of a very high intellectual Mandarin tone and complete um, colloquial man-of-the-street speech in the story Spring Fugue. There's, there's moments where he says, yuck. And there's other times where he, he speaks like an academic. And I love the the yoking of those two impulses. It's a little bit like what Saul Bellow did. They're both um, products of the Midwest and um, not really so different in age. There's something about their voices that, that have such a range from from common speech to very, very highfalutin talk um, that, that I, I just find infectious. And I just love... To read Brodsky's sentences, they're, they're just no one else could have written them, and that's that's something that, that I really admire. Right. Spring Fugue is about a man noting down the signs of the arrival of spring in his life and in New York City where he lives. Is there anything else you think we should listen for as you read it? I guess the, the stuffed nosiness of the whole piece. Brodsky's very good at writing about the physical state of the body in, in, a, in a very um, cerebral way, but the whole story is about spring allergies, the idea of of love as a kind of allergy that returns annually mm-hmm. is is threaded throughout the story. There's a lot of um, decongestants in the story, <laughs> and and when you when you read it a few times, you you almost feel a kind of head cold coming on. <laughs> Something about that makes you feel like spring, makes you feel like you're in love. Mm-hmm. Some of some of the segments, especially at the beginning, remind me a little bit of a of a Frank O'Hara poem. This sort of narrative of someone making his way through the city. And, and I wonder what, what you think makes this a story and not a prose poem, for instance. I think I wouldn't argue incredibly hard that it's really a story and not a prose <laughs> poem. It kind of is a, a prose poem. But if there is something that makes it a story, it's the relationship between the uh, the husband and wife. And the long section of dialogue between them is is very fresh, and you get a, a good sense of 
of their relationship. So there, there is a sense of, of two people going through a, a small crisis that makes or lends the story a dramatic arc. Well, we'll talk more about the story and about Harold Brodke later in the program. Now here's Jeffrey Eugenides reading Spring Fugue. The first orchestral realization that something is up, playing Vivaldi's The Four Seasons on a Spavin CD player. It was a gray day in early February, and the sun came out, and I was thinking, the dry cleaners, the dry cleaners, the dry cleaners, the dry cleaners. The first crocus, the sunflower market, tie vegetables and seeds, 2809 Broadway, February 14th, spindly and snowflecked. First cold, March 19th to April 2nd. My wife and I are on our way to our accountants. On the way, I see two drunks fighting in front of the OTB on Broadway at 91st. April is the duelist's month. Tacitly flirting with my wife, I carry two small packets of Kleenex in my pockets, one for her because of her allergies. She makes a small, nifty, nasal piccolo announcement of the annual change in her life. I make the second really bad pun of the season. We sound like Bruce Springsteen, an accompanist, doing Bach's The Cold Bug Variations. First episode of spring nosiness, not having to do with allergies or nose-blowing. I don't know why the soul's primary mechanics should consider spying or snooping a natural attribute of renewed life, but in the office icebox, I see a small gold-colored can, shaped like a shoe-polish can, of caviar, and I wonder, jealously, who is so happy and so bent on celebration or self-indulgence, but when I open it, it is empty, and written on the bottom of the can, in pencil, is the phrase, hard cheese. First philosophical guess. My guess is that spring is a natural way of suggesting adolescence as something one should start to go through again. Genetic duty and genetic activity are romance. Hmm. Nature is as tricky as any politician. The thought of George Bush leads to the first depression of the season. First emotional detail. More light on the windowsill. First piece of strange advice to oneself. Lighten up. First symptom of intellectual confusion. On waking after dreams of fair women and of various unspeakable acts with them. Memory, those astonishing chambers of lost realities becomes overactive, leaving a broad sensation of gambling, rue let. The enumeration of the bedroom furnishings, a nightstand, one nightstand, two nightstands, three nightstands, no, no. In the bathroom, first session, practicing smile. First impulse of active love. A sloppy kiss while my wife is putting on her shoes. She gazes at me. Oh, it's spring, she says. Shopping list for first three-day weekend in the country to rent a house for the summer. Contact, Kleenex, Beatles tape, citronella candles. To leave in the rented house if we find it. Jump rope for losing weight. 
walking shoes, jeans one size too small to force oneself to diet, a handful of short-lived cut lilac to carry in the car as an aid memoir. First, equinocial death shudder and racial memory of human sacrifice for the sake of warmth and the return of summer. A roadkill on 32A outside of Saugerties. A no longer hibernating, but probably still torpid, thin woodchuck. Second such event after returning home. Cutting my thumb while using a new Belgian serrated-edged slicing knife that slipped on a small Israeli tomato while I was thinking about Super Tuesday two years ago and whistling Dixie. Am I unconsciously angry? First hysterical delusion. Advertised medicines that come to mind when seeing, in a moment of stress, spring flowers in the mind. Nuprinello jonquils, tetracycline-colored tulips, red and yellow ones. Tylenol-colored clouds. Tylenol is lonely tea spelled backward. Advil-colored dirt. Theragran-M-colored drying blood. With my hand betowled and my soul a little mad with pessimism about the current ways we live, and with gaiety, heroism, and the spring wound, I phone my wife at her office. She makes more money than I do. Advice, sympathy, information from my wife's assistant while I am waiting for my wife to end a meeting. It is possible that even the assistant makes more money than I do. I am a schoolteacher. She says that in the stores is a helping the blood clot and disinfectant and anesthetic spray, and there are clutch bandages. But beware, she says. The spray depletes the ozone layer, and the clutch bandage harms circulation. The finger may turn nuprin yellow, crocus yellow, coward yellow. The conversation with my wife is out of a melodramatic domestic novel, except that at work she is Nietzschean. I refer to her being possessed by the will to power. My wife says, how deep is the cut? I think I see the bone. She says, do you see any white? Yes, that's the tendon. Bones aren't white while you're still alive. They're not white until you clean them after you rob them from a grave. You may have cut the tendon. Can you move it? No. Yes, it looks like a bone. It isn't the bone. But there are nerves in there. Is that true? That's not just hypochondria? You should be able to see only one nerve, unless it's a really big cut. Do you see it? See the nerve? It's a thing. It's visible. What does it look like? A thread. Does it make you sick to look at the wound? No. What makes you think that? Well, take a look and tell me what you see. There is a silence, and then she calls out, Hey, hey, hey. I fainted a little. I'm sort of on my knees here. Hold on, let me get up. Oof, that was stupid. What I saw was gray-white. There's quite a lot of gray-white. I suppose I saw blood, but it looked gray-white, and blood isn't gray-white. It's bluish, I remember. I... You're in shock. Is there anyone with you? I was cutting a tomato. Yes? Someone is coming over. Someone will be here soon. You. But you can't come home. You're at work. Should I go get a clotting spray? Go to the emergency room at the hospital. You did this call? I don't remember. Remember? 
I say miserably. You cut your thumb. Yes, I guess so. Unless this is all a dream, I say, hopefully. Did you dowel with your left hand? I wrapped my hand in a towel and I squeezed the towel with the other hand. I dialed with my little finger. It's touch-tone, the phone is, I think. I forget if there are large numbers on the touch-tone phone or small ones. Tiny, really. Are they stubborn or easy? Stubborn. Then if you dialed and didn't bleed all over the phone, you're probably okay. Would you say you were showing sympathy? You may quiver with madness and shock at my saying this, but I promise that if you stay overnight at the hospital, I will bring you volumes of Kundera, Solzhenitsyn, Havel, so you can see what horror and suffering truly are. Shit. On the other hand, our Maltese doorman's sister-in-law died of sepsis after a knife cut in her hand, which she got chopping beets when she was visiting her mother-in-law in Valletta. Wait for me. I'm coming home. My wife is a spring goddess, a Nietzschean nightingale, Florence. Here, she says, let me look. A kiss won't make that well. Let's go. A kiss or two later, as we pass a homeless guy, who at first, I think, is me in the third person hailing a taxi, and as my shock begins to lift, I say to her sadly, When I was a child, I had a Swiss barometer with a wooden house on it. The house had two doors. Out of one came a boy in shorts and with a Tyrolean hat on, and I think a girl in a dirndl came out of the other. They went inside if it was going to rain. Nowadays, I suppose you might have a homeless person carved in wood and sleeping on a subway grating to indicate good weather and going into an arcade or a subway to indicate rain. Some prose written after the third kiss from her and after the doctor took three stitches in my thumb. I sit at her desk in her office, looking out her large window. Give me the huge actual clouds of the Republic and not the meager udders of water vapor painted on the old backdrops the Republic Studios used in John Wayne's day. We like the actual big, baggy clouds of a New York spring, one doesn't want to flog a transiting cloud to death, but if we are to have sentimental light, let us have it at least in its obvious local form. Dry, white, sear, and, I guess, provincial. The spiritual splendor of our drizzly and slap-happy spring weather. Our streets jammed with sneezing pedestrians. Our skies loony with bluster. Our are local equivalents of lilac hedges and meadows. Blustery, raw, and rare, and more wind-of-the-sea-scoured than half-melted St. Petersburg. Yuck to cities that have an immersed-in-the-swamp-and-lagoon moist-air light. They are for watercolorists. Where water laps at the edges of the stones and bricks of somewhat wavery real estate is not home. Home is New York, stony and tall. Its real estate is real. So is its spring. That was Jeffrey Eugenides reading Spring Fugue by Harold Brodkey, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1990 and is collected in The World is the Home of Love and Death 
published posthumously in 1997 by Henry Holt. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff, do you think that Brodke is playing with a double meaning of the word fugue here? In a sense, that the story is both a piece of music with this recurring theme. It's a song about spring, and it's also sort of the musings of someone in a fugue state. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. He's in a fugue state. He's, he's dizzy-headed, um, but the story is structured in a, a polyphonic way. So you, you, have both, you have both of those meanings there for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Brodke's writing is always, is always very dense. It's not usually this brief. What I like about the story is the way he packs so much detail into into almost nothing. You know, in, in about 500 words, we get that this guy lives on the Upper West Side, that he's married, that he's overweight, that he doesn't like George Bush Sr., presumably, that he's, you know, he belongs to the class of people who rent summer mm-hmm. houses. And uh, none of these things are actually stated or said in any kind of narrative way, but you you learn so much very fast. It's true. I was admiring that about the story as well. I mean, you, he doesn't really go on about his class or, or, or the fact that he was good in school. Most Brodke stories, he spends at least five pages telling you what it was like <laughs> to be the smartest guy in school. And here, you know, because of the form, the form forced Brodke here to throw overboard a lot of the stuff he usually has. And in, in this case, it, it helped a lot. It gave a lot of air uh, to the story. He has that one line, cutting my thumb while using a new Belgian serrated edge <laughs> slicing knife that slipped on a small Israeli tomato while I yeah. was thinking about Super Tuesday two years ago and whistling Dixie. You couldn't really get more sort of cultural and socioeconomic references into into half a sentence. That one completely overwhelms me. I have no idea about the whistling Dixie part <laughs> at the end. But I like the Israeli tomato. That's actually quite a good detail. Um, Spring Fugue, I think, was possibly an outtake from... Brodke's first novel, The Runaway Soul, which came out in 1991 and almost 30 years after he started writing it. Originally, it was meant to be titled Party of Animals, and perhaps Runaway Soul was only part of what he had planned. But it's one of those books that that lived in legend long before it lived in reality. Mm-hmm. Were you reading Brodke in those days and following him? Obviously, you were you're much I, younger. I, I was. I mean, part of my attachment to Brodke is the poignancy of of his career with his huge promise and success with with his first book of short stories and then the kind of legend that grew up around him. I remember when I first came to New York hearing stories about him being very um, kind of huffy at a party. If people didn't think he was the best writer in the world, he would storm out of the party. And then um, I met him uh, one, one night and it was on the verge when I published my f- first book, The Virgin Suicides. 
and um, he he came to a very small gathering at the parish review, and I was amazed to to meet him, and we ended up sharing a, a cab home, and he was one of the first great writers um, that I ever met in person, and as we traveled across the city, he asked me about my book and said, well, you must be excited, I remember what it's like to have a first book coming out, and he seemed very vulnerable and very sweet and everything um, that I didn't expect him to to be, mm-hmm. and that, I guess it increased my, my um, fascination with him, but it, it seemed to me that as he um, wrote that book and as the legend grew about him, he did amass uh, a body of work that actually did make him the great writer that he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And even though it seemed to me that when, when Runaway Soul came out, it didn't bring him the, the instant accolades that he, that he might have wanted, it didn't matter in the end. After that, he wrote another book rather quickly about, about Venice and then sadly died. But if you look back now at everything he did, um, the work is, is tremendous. And um, I, I think he, he was um, a, a triumphant but kind of lonely literary figure. And there's something about that that, that appeals to me. Well, it seems as though his, his emotional life took place very much in public, much more so than, than seems normal. And obviously he, was, he, was, he wrote a bit in the confessional mode and he, he wrote his you know, famous piece about having AIDS and, and went very public with, with mm-hmm. his own process of dying. Right. It's, it's true. I mean, there were articles about him and how he couldn't write his book that I remember yeah. were bigger than articles about people that had written the exactly. book. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <But laughs> it's funny. That, I mean, the story of his life reminds me also a little of Henry Roth, mm-hmm. who had 60 years go by between books, and um, who also, interestingly, you know, wrote about having been involved in incest, and, and Brodke was publicly talked about having been abused by his adoptive father, um, what, what do you think it was that stymied him for so long? He wasn't completely stymied. He must have been published 30 times in, in The New Yorker mm-hmm. with fiction and, and um, talk of the town pieces and, and, and kind of light reportage. I have no idea. I can't speculate what yeah. stymied him. I would think from reading his work that he did have a very high ideal of, of what he could publish and, and, and mm-hmm. what was true to his, his own vision. And I don't think it was easy to write his his stories, the um, offhanded way that they sometimes seem to be narrated, I don't I don't think is actually offhanded. I think he spent a lot of time rewriting <laughs> to get it to that kind of tone and that kind of polish and also that kind of casualness. He probably had psychological oddities, but I, I just can't speculate on that. It, it's hard to announce that you're going to write the great American novel and then write it. It's probably easier to, <laughs> yes. to write it first. <laughs> I'm writing a really lousy book at the <laughs> exactly. moment. Exactly. Then no one has any expectations. Brocky <laughs> um, attracts very mixed responses from readers. There are mm-hmm. people who just you know rave about yeah. him. Harold Bloom, you know, said he was unparalleled in American prose fiction since the death of William Faulkner. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. And um, there are others who just you know find him so solipsistic they can't even read mm-hmm. him. And I, how, how do you explain the mixture of response? Well. I want, it, it's like atonal music in, in a way. I don't think it's atonal. I think it's quite pleasant. But it, I'll use that as an analogy. I think sometimes it's just a kind of noise people don't want to hear. They just have a very strong reaction against it. So they actually don't spend enough time with it to see what kind of, what kind of benefits and glories it, it has. I, I don't know. I mean, when you like something, 
that much. It's difficult to understand why people don't like yeah, it, and yeah. it's the last thing I actually want to figure out. I guess yeah, <laughs> that's so yeah. many, so few things give me that pleasure that that I don't want to ruin it by wondering <laughs> what might be wrong. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly runaway soul. I I didn't make it through, you know. So yeah. I I do know why people get fatigued and overwhelmed by Brodkey, and that's why I do like the shorter works. Mm-hmm. But I, every time I come back to him after years pass, I always feel this sense of him talking directly to me. And, and I really don't think anyone is, has a mind quite like his. Do you think he's had an influence on, on your own writing? Not too much, actually, because I don't really feel a real spiritual affinity to him. I do like the idea of a, a pro style that can be both highly literary and also casual and colloquial. So maybe there are registers like that mm-hmm. in, in my work that I'd, I hope, I'd hope to have that are like Brodke's. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. You can read Jeffrey Eugenides' latest story, Great Experiment, on our website, newyorker.com. He recently edited a book of love stories called My Mistress's Sparrow is Dead, which was published by HarperCollins. You can download previous fiction podcasts and hear George Saunders on Isaac Babel or Louise Erdrich on Laurie Moore, among many others, at newyorker.com or by visiting the iTunes store and typing New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.